Before we get rolling with the podcast today, just want to let you know about Cyber Monday coming up for TechSmith. It's the biggest sale of the year on November 29th and November 30th, 2021. Make sure you check out all the great prices because they only happen like this once a year. So don't miss it. Cyber Monday this year on the TechSmith website, available only online. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, whether you're watching live or listening to the recording or the podcast, we're so glad that you're here with us today because as always, we've got a fantastic guest. Before we get to our guest though, real quick, I just want to mention that if you're interested in learning more about any of TechSmith's products, you can always find that. Of course, we've got an event coming up, October 5th. It's it's the Level Up event. We're gonna be talking about workplace communication. We're gonna drop the link in the chat. There's still maybe a little space left. It's, it's gonna... We're at the point where it's almost sold out. So if you you are interested in that uh, leveling up your workplace communication, you gotta act now because it's gonna get filled up. It's got such great response. We're so grateful for everybody that's signed up. And it's gonna be fantastic. Get to hear from the CEO of TechSmith, Wendy Hamilton. Get to hear from me, Andy Owen, who's been on the show. He's our video producer. You get to hear from Daniel Foster, who works with Snaga and, and, and many other people. So we're so grateful for the opportunity. Now, with that said, let's jump into today's show. So Mel Milloway is currently a learning experience design manager at Miro. Prior to working at Miro, she has worked in learning design at Amazon and in other in learning and development roles at other organizations. Uh, Mel is known for promoting and talking about UX design, crafting mockups, and developing learning products using a variety of technologies. She often blogs about new tools she's testing out, providing free, let me say it again, free resources, and sharing her own musings about the field of learning development. And I love this statement from her website because I think it's pretty accurate. From what I know of Mel, she says, my style is a little quirky. I like plants, pasta making, Art. Now it's not pasta making art. It's just pasta making, <laughs> comma art. Documentaries, yeah. traveling, coffee, trying new food, and did I mention coffee? And I've been privileged to work with Mel through the Association of Talent Development Technology Conference Planning Committee. She is just so amazingly talented and is wonderful at sharing. And it's someone if you don't know who she is or haven't had a chance to follow her, it is well worth following and keeping track of all the things that she's doing. And if you like small dogs, you can follow along with her small dog as well. So welcome Mel to the Visual Lounge. Hey Matt, thank you for having me here. And I have to also say my small dog is named ZD. So um, just a testament to how much I love pasta <laughs> and pasta <laughs> making, I guess. You know, I actually, I, I knew your dog's name was ZD and because uh, we got a question in the speed round, we're going to ask about ZD. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't make the connection. That's awesome that you love pasta so much. But not, do you love pasta art making, though? That's the real question here. I, I feel like that, that's something that I, could be an endeavor in my future. I feel like there, maybe I need to marry the two things, marry my passions in life. Yeah, pasta art is not nearly as tasty, though. So th- that's maybe one of the problems. Well, Mel, we're so glad that you're here. And we want to talk today about, you know, I, th- I find it interesting your, your title is a learning experience designer. And I know you've talked about this in other places, but will you give us a kind of a high level view? What does that really mean for p- people? Like they're like, I've, I've never heard that. I'm, you know, not in the industry or maybe they're in a company that they just have instructional designers. And what's the difference? 
Yeah. And I think like, I think you'll hear differences depending on like who you speak to as well. So or who you speak with as well. So for me, I'll, I'll say it in my own, my own terms, I suppose, my own words. Um, so when I first started in the field of instructional design, I was doing a lot of the like very standard like analysis, um, doing like script writing, writing storyboards, creating storyboards, visual designs, doing e-learning development, all of that. And when um, at one point in, at Amazon, um, when I was on my my latest team that I was on at Amazon, which was an employee services, we started to talk about things like design systems. So design systems are essentially, it's um, for UX designers and people in product to create like a repository and rules around how you use like different components, like buttons, like, okay, all of our buttons are going to look like this because like across experiences, it creates a cohesive look. Um, it's not a brand guide or anything like that, but it can include like brand guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so that started getting me like super interested in, oh, like people are using this in UX and product, but like we're creating products and learning and we should be testing these project products with users. We should be like interviewing users. It's there is that overlap. Um, so what I ended up doing at Amazon was creating a design system, which then I um, ended up bringing on a UX designer, Brandon, on our team. He's now at Netflix. He's an amazing just like visual designer and UX designer in general. And he owned that. And we started developing our user testing and our user interview like templates and how we would approach that and what is our process for that. So what I really see learning experience design as, because that's kind of how I got into it was that design system piece that was like four maybe four three or four years ago what i see it really as is marrying the two things um like yeah. i said earlier you know taking that ux area and those practices and ingraining them and embedding them into that instructional design process and saying like okay we are going to do a user test with people so one of the things we created was a website and we wanted to validate the information architecture of the website. It was a place where people were going to find information about like talent development, compensation, like all of those types of topics. And so we would give people a goal. We would say, um, this is the, this is the problem that you're trying to solve. An employee wants to know about X, Y, Z on compensation. The person that we were interviewing, um, we would ask them to share their screen. They would narrate like the steps they would take to get to that information. And we would actually um, time all of that. And we would say, okay, we think it should take this amount. Um, if the person went to the wrong area, we would say, hey, maybe we need to move this content to a different area. So it's really looking at like how, like making sure people can get to the information they need in the moment they need it um, is one part of that. So a lot of things I'll let you <laughs> no, stop that, there, Matt, because I talked about a lot of different things. No, well, this is, I, I, and I've got about th five threads going through my head. So one thing that you mentioned, you know, that you're coming up with these design systems. Um, Connie Malalamed, I'm going to get her name wrong every yes, single time. I, I know who you mean. She's amazing. She's amazing. And she talked about like the material design type thing. So you're doing a little bit of that, right? Thinking about kind yes. of what should it look like, consistency across learning. But then, yeah. you know, at, at TechSmith, I know, you know, from my experience, you know, we used to have a product that would do user research like Moray. And we had one called UserView a long time ago. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. But I love this idea that you know, we obviously have to create the widget, right? Like the training has to be someplace. The information you talked about needs to be someplace. 
Yeah. But I love that it's thinking about how are they going to get there uh, and what what's the path they take, what's the experience, like, and not with the learning itself, but kind of all the stuff, right? Like, and so Everything, I love, yeah, yeah it seems so, so fascinating to me. So, so from this experiences that you've had and the things that you're continuing to do, this is really, a, I, I, I'm going to just preface this. This is a really broad, vague question, and I don't know that we can answer it, but generally, what is good learning design then? Like what, what does, what needs to be true for us to, to have that? And I'm sure it's always kind of changing and shifting based on your audience and your interviews and what you're learning, but are there kind of fundamental principles that you could share with us that would be like, we don't need everything, but yeah. we'd probably be here for days, but uh, are there a few things you say like, yeah, fundamentally, here's what needs to be true about good learning design. Yeah, I think like, um, I think the biggest thing that I, most people in learning will say is like, what we're trying to do is enable performance, we're trying to empower people, like remove those barriers so that people can perform, and they're able to do whatever it is, the goal that they need to be able to do. And in order to do that, um, I really love like Bob Mosier's five moments of need. And everyone's probably so sick of me talking about Bob Mosier's five moments of need, but really looking at like, where is that learner in their journey? Is it something that they're learning for the first time? Because if they're learning something for the first time, they might need a lot more than someone who is just trying to troubleshoot something. They're in the middle of something and they're like, just like, I know how to do everything, but this one thing, like I'm stressed out. Like I'm just, I'm trying to remember how to do it or, um, something's gone wrong or something like that. And when we're looking at someone doing something for the first time, like maybe they need more practice. So I think it's about looking at what is that that journey for someone. So for like in product training, um, I use like I use the Adobe Creative Suite all the time. I use Camtasia, um, a lot of different multimedia tools. There's things that I know or I have like a foundational skill level at. And then there's things where it's like, I just need a YouTube video. I just need this one thing because it's like the one thing that I need to be able to do. I don't need everything. So it's trying to figure out where is that person at and what is the best thing that we can do for them in that moment? Is it to serve that up through the product itself? Or um, do we see people going to YouTube? Like, what do we see them doing? Like, what's going to help them the best in that moment? And what kind of experience is that going to be the best yeah, absolutely. And I love that. And uh, a comment from Kara North came in and she just said, that's a million dollar question. Good learning design looks so different across organizations, right? It does. It does. And it, when I was at Amazon, I think one of the most challenging things was we weren't creating learning on just one product either. Um, we had like, I think like tw about 25 different products we were supporting. Plus, you know, there were like processes unrelated to, to products, um, and soft skills and so so many different things and the biggest challenge was trying to figure out like okay our audience is a different person for every single every single project that we're working on and how do we best fit this to them so it was constant it was we were constantly like turned on to like that user experience piece because we're trying to understand who our user was in that moment yeah for sure for sure um so one of the things I've noticed as I, you know, I was doing my research trying to prepare for our conversation today and I went and looked at your blog, um, which is, if anyone hasn't seen oh it, you know, it's got some great stuff on there. Lots of, you know, lots of great resources, articles and things you link to. But one thing I noticed, you've got the portfolio stuff. I'm just going to report that 
you know, I did the uh, wilderness survival food eating one, and I, I, I only missed one, so I would survive in the wilderness pretty good. Um, but I noticed you have a lot of things that are, are, are more technical than we're used to when we talk to a lot of instructional designers. You know, you're, you're doing some JavaScript stuff, you're doing some other code, and uh, things I probably, I, I'm not even qualified to talk about. Um, I don't know if I am either. <laughs> But, but, but the thing okay. I'm, I'm curious about, Mel, is as you because you're doing these things that you're I think you're pushing some boundaries here, right? A lot of us are dealing with, you know, we're dealing with the standard like, yeah, we're making videos, we're making images, we're doing multimedia, we're doing maybe some articulate storyline or Captivate, Camtasia videos, things like that. But I'm curious, as you dive into these things that they're maybe a little bit more, more complex, it also brings a level of diversity to you, what you can do. How has that helped you in the process of you kind of think about this bigger design picture? Is that been valuable? Is that something just like because you love it, or does it do these two things come together? Yeah, it. I, yeah, I have a basic. I could talk about this forever, actually. Um, so I'll just start where where you just left off. I I always love really technical things, and like in another life, I would probably be an, an engineer. My partner's an engineer, and um, I was also taking coding classes. Like while he was going through his coding boot camp, and it's something that kind of like just innately started because I enjoy doing technical things, but. In my career, I will say it's probably one of the things that's helped me the most because um, it helps me to understand like what's possible in learning. When I'm able to create something, I can say, yes, we can do this, or um, I know how much time it takes, or I know how much time it might take someone who's, who's better at it than me because I know maybe I'm not so good at it. Um, so it really helps me when it comes to seeing like what's possible and how much input it would take or what we would need to be able to do it. But then also um, when I when I moved over to becoming a people leader, it also helped me to be able to like coach my team and like help them do the things that like they were very passionate about either developing skills in or troubleshooting. So it helped us to be able to troubleshoot a lot. So one of the things like when something breaks in a course or in basically anything on the web is like, I'll go to the console and I'll see like, what console errors am I getting? And I'll say, okay, like if we're getting this error, um, it's, it's an issue with this or it's an issue with that. Something that would come up a lot is, especially if you're using like you're doing things with JavaScript and experience API, um, you'll see console errors that where your JavaScript's broken and it will tell you in the console like, exactly where it's broken and you'll know how to fix it. Um, so it's helped me a lot with that sort of thing. Another thing that it's most recently helped me with is like working with vendors or working with other people where you're not necessarily doing the work, but you're able to have like a more knowledgeable conversation with them. You're able to kind of understand like costs of things. That's not something that I'm necessarily doing right now, but um, when I first started, I was working with a lot of vendors and you can say, okay, I know it would take me this long. So are they overcharging me or mm -hmm. those types of things? Um, because that can, it can happen realistically. So it helps you have those more informed conversations that hopefully lead to like cost savings or time savings or different things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I love that, that it gives you, it, you know, it's this empowering thing that not only, oh, I could build that. Or, yeah. I might, it might take me two days, but someone else could, you know, someone that's good could do it and, in a half a and day. And I'm, 
I will say, so I get to lead um, the academy at Miro. So if you go to um, academy.miro.com, it's a website has all of our courses and everything on it. And my manager was like, I, people really want to have timestamps like on our tiles that have our courses. And I was like, no worries. I can do that. in like, you know, like three hours, whereas like we would have had to find someone to do it. And it's stuff like that, that are just like quick and easy wins where I'm, I feel very proud because I've developed these skills and I get to actually apply them. And, um, there's been times where I've had these skills and I've just not been able to use them because like they weren't needed. And so it's just, it's nice to be able to do those things too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I beg, borrow and steal. Uh, I have a good friend that works at TechSmith and I know he's got just enough skills to do some stuff for the TechSmith Academy. I'm like, could we add categories here? Like break them <laughs> up? Could we sort by, and he's, he's, he's amazing. He can do it. And it's like, for me, it would, I could maybe get there, but it would take me forever. And it's, but it's so it's, it's cool to see that intersection, right? Like all these different pieces of things coming together. Um, and I want to switch back. I know, I know we talked a little bit about UX, but that was the other thing I noticed that just in your blog, you're sharing like tons of UX resources. And I love this, this, this intersection of, of the, the role UX can have. Um, and UX is a lot of things. And I, I don't want to spend time defining all the things UX is or isn't. But obviously with design and with UX, there's an element of visuals, right? For, for when you're creating whether it's a course or you're building out academies or the th all the things that you do, what role do vi like visuals typically play in the process of your design? Are you, are you using them as spice? Are you using them for meaning? Like I, there's a million things I know you could use them for, but what kind of things, how do you, you use visuals in your, your work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think visuals are so, they're so important. And um, it's not just like what visuals you use, but it's also how you use them. So I remember we were working on, on a course. I think this was like a little, maybe it was, oh, wow. It was probably like two years ago. It was like, was it a year ago? It was like two years ago. Time and has no so, meaning. <laughs> time has no meaning during COVID right now. So, um, so I want to talk a little bit about like how to use visuals in different ways. So, mm -hmm. um, so say you have a screen and there are two columns, right? So there's two columns. The we have a picture here, and then um, a call to action here. Uh, so you would want and say the pictures of a person, and they're like uh, it's like a profile. You want to have the picture not face away from the call to action, but towards. So the person's profile should be looking towards the call to action because what people generally look for, like when they're looking at a site is, that has a person on it, they're looking at where the eyes are mm -hmm. and they're looking at where the eyes are going and the face is going. So by doing that, you're drawing attention to the call to action because you're looking at the person and the person's looking at the call to action. So it's not just about like, is this picture relevant? Is it helpful? But it's also about those like little things that people don't necessarily like think about. And in UX, there's a lot of like rules like that, um, rules about uh, proximity um, of things. So like um, the closer things are, the more related they are to each other. So if you're trying to create like, a card that has like a title and a description of a course and a button, you don't want them to be like super far away from each other, right? Because then you're not going to go know they're related. But you also want to use like white space to like let things breathe. Um, so there, it's all about balance and trying to figure out what's, what's, uh, what works the best. I really love this website. 
Um, it's called Laws of UX, if anyone has ever seen it. And it goes over all these different types of principles, the gestalt principles, um, different things that will help you with visuals and designing different types of experiences as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm familiar with what we lovingly call the crap principles, contrast, <laughs> repetition, alignment, proximity, that good design should have. It's not crap, but it is crap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so I think it's it's really important to have like relevant relevant visuals. Um, understand like when is it best to have like like decorative things? Like, is it adding or subtracting? Like for me, I think my biggest rule for myself is I need to be able to describe why every single thing is on that screen. Anything I'm putting, whether it's in e-learning whether it's in a website, like I should be able to articulate the why behind every single thing and why it's at where it's at even. Um, I was designing uh, activity, like we had an activity challenge on my team, we would do these monthly challenges. And I remember I created a form and I put the submit button on the right hand side. And apparently there, there's some sort of research, I don't know if it's like the pattern that people's eyes scan, but it's best to place it on the left hand side for some certain reason. Mm -hmm. And my team, I had it on the right and they were like, you have to put on the left and here's why. And I would constantly like with my team be like, like we have, when we speak about design, we have to speak to not our preferences, but like, what is the research behind this? Like when we're giving each other feedback. So it's not like, I don't like that color because it's an ugly color. It's like, I think it should be another color because you know, and it's not accessible or because red draws more attention. And it, it, this is a very important button that people need to pay attention to. So that's something like I would also preach a lot is like, sh share the why not like our personal opinion or preference. Yeah, I, I love that. But it's also like, it feels also very overwhelming, right? Like, oh, gosh, now we need to know all this stuff. And <laughs> Um, how often do you find that your gut is, and, and you probably have a, a more finely tuned kind of intuition about this because you've been studying it and working on it and doing it than others, but like, how often do you find like your gut's kind of like, it just tells you like, yeah, that's really not right. Even if, even if you love it, you know, like, oh gosh, I really love the picture of pasta on this page, but yeah. there's nothing to do with pasta, right? Sometimes, so like, so, so Brandon and I, who was the visual designer that I would work with so often, he... I would be like, Brandon, like this feels very wrong to me, but I can't articulate like the why this feels wrong to me. And so for me, it's always about like, um, like checking with other people, because if you have a feeling about something and you don't know, they may know why and be able to articulate it. And then that helps me to be able to take what they said and identify it later in different places and describe the why. But I also just don't know what I don't know. So for one of the things like we did on our team was we always had a learning experience designer quality assurance person who would literally take just maybe 30 minutes on someone else's project, go through it and just leave comments like that. Like, okay, um, I would suggest to do this because here's why, or did you think about doing this because here's why. Um, so for me, it's about not working just in a silo and it's about bringing like other people's expertise because there's no way I would ever be able to know everything. I might have a feeling about something, uh, but it doesn't mean it's right. So it's important to have other people check your work. 
Yeah, that's, it's it's great advice, and I know uh, you know same is true with like video and stuff. We we do that all the time, right? I get people. Ch I want someone to see it because you just don't like. Did I miss something, or did I, something wonky, or weird, or just off? I, I want to shift gears here a little bit. We will come back to video uh, in a, in a few minutes, so. But I want to ask you. So you've made this kind of shift where it sounds like your previous a lot of your previous roles were internally facing roles where you're working with a you know your your audience that you're designing for are part of the same organization. And now you've moved to this public facing role and customer education role that you're working Your primary, your, I'm, I'm assuming your customers are external. They are customers of the company. How is, for you right now, and I, I know this is a fairly new transition, but I'm curious, what's different? When you think about designing and creating, are there major differences or are these things really closely aligned? Yeah, um, I think, I think this is, this one is like so tough and I, I don't know that everyone will agree with me on this. And I think it's very similar because regardless of who your audience is, like they're, they're going to have goals. Um, so like we work, we may create a course for basically everyone to understand a product, but it would be the same internally for me. There might be like an infinite amount of users and how they might use something or different use cases. But it, when it comes down to it, it's still like, this is the product or this is like the, the buttonology. So like how to use it. And then the way people use it might be different depending on their role. So I think when it really comes down to it, it's working backwards from like, okay, who are your customers in this instance? Like, are they UX designers? Because maybe you're creating a course for UX designers to use Miro or something like that. Or maybe you're doing something internally for, um, we had things like, I don't even know, I'm trying to think, like time and attendance systems. Um, internally at Amazon, we were creating training for. Uh, there, people use it so differently in every country, in every role. And we're in lots of countries in mm -hmm. Amazon. So um, it, when it comes down to it, it's like working backwards from like, who are we trying to solve this problem for? Is it for everyone? Or is it for like one specific like type of user or audience? If that makes sense, because if it's if it's very broad, and it could be anyone, no specific role whatsoever, it comes when it comes down to it, it's going to be kind of like more so if it's a product, maybe a little bit of buttonology, but more, I think where the more value gets added is when you're talking about like the why. So like, why would I, why would I use this feature this way versus like another way versus like how to use the feature itself, right. if that makes sense. Cause buttonology just basically means like in order for me to screen record in Camtasia, I have to click on this, this, and this. But if you just tell someone exactly how to do it, like, do they know why they're doing it that way? Or if there's a different way to do it? Because usually in tools, there's a variety of different ways you could do get to the, the solution. Um, but people may not be able to like articulate the why they would do it that way versus another way. No, that makes that makes total sense because Camtasia is a good example, right? Because there are multiple ways to get, like even to the recorder. I go this way. I go to my file menu, or I'm, I'm, you know, why am I selecting this full screen, or why am I doing or just a partial recording? Like, yeah, there's so many steps along process. the way. I was just talking with someone about editing, and like I was there. I had an intro animation, an outro animation, and then I had all of my footage in between. And I noticed that the that someone had a 
music in the beginning, in the intro and music at the end. And I was like, oh, that's so curious. So like they're syncing the animation first, I think, with the intro animation and also with the outro. And then I think what they're probably doing is deleting it and then um, doing the full like background music afterwards. And I was like, but there's different, there's so many different ways you could do it. You could just like not do any of that. Like, why would you do it this way versus that way? So I think, I just think it's so interesting to think through like, Hey, like what's the most optimal way to do this thing or um, best practices or different things like that. Yeah. So Josh Cavalier was a guest on the show not too long ago. And we talked a lot about workflows, right? It's like creating, create the workflow that's going to work for you. And whether if music doing that process is what makes sense, that's probably the best process for you. But if it's not like, and you don't need music at all, like why don't spend the time on those things. So it's, yeah, it is, it's such an interesting thing that we have to cover the, you know, we need to show people how to do something, but yeah. like, there's a million ways to do it and which way is going to work best for them. And, and some of it's just, I find is also learned preference. Um, yes. Like, which oh, is totally I, fine too. Right. Right. Like I, Oh, I always do it this way. And then you watch people like, why are you doing it that way? And you're like, you're like, you know, you could save three clicks and they're like, Nope, I just, just <laughs> this, this is just easier. So, yeah. Uh, um, so we're going to move to video here questions in a second. Uh, I want to take a few questions from the audience. Uh, Kara is asking, and I think we just talked about this a little bit. How is your role in customer success uh, different than other uh, LXD roles? Is there really much else different? Um, kind of, I guess that's kind of from what you're doing now versus what you were. Yeah, I think there, I think there are a lot of differences. There's a lot of things that are very similar, um, but there's also things that are very different. I think, like what I'm definitely seeing in being more of a customer facing role is like, usually what I've seen is you have to adhere to brand. There's a lot of like brand guidelines. Um, it's something like in an internal role, we really tried to do. Um, but it wasn't something where someone was going to come back to us and be like, Oh, you didn't, you didn't follow brand. But for me, it was really important because if you know the colors that you're using and the fonts that you're using, like scalability is really really key when it comes to those things. So for instance, like internally at one point, if anyone from my old team sees this, they're going to be like, Oh, that's typical Melissa. Um, They're going to be like, (laughs) we had like 5,000 different fonts. Like when I started on the team. And I think the one thing that aggravated me the most is every time I would open a file, I would not have that font. And I felt like I was always on this like font Easter egg hunt. Like where are these fonts? And so at one point I was just like, you all like, I'm just wasting so much time just trying to find fonts and like the user experience isn't going to be consistent like for people across the organization. So we all just like, we're like, we're just going to use the, this, these two fonts and like, we'll do bold if we need bold to highlight different areas or things like that. So there's things like that where it's, I think more stringent, I will say. Um, and it should be right. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like internal versus external, this one's like a little bit more subjective, but like when you're internal, a lot of times I found that you're just trying to save the company money. Um, like unless you're in sales training, because then you're, you know, hopefully creating training to help the salespeople generate more money for the company. Um, but I feel like external, you are, you're trying to retain customers. You're trying to win new customers. Um, it's, not necessarily like that internally. It's like, Hey, like we notice people don't know how to do this thing. And like, we're losing a lot of money because they're not 
they have no idea how to do it. Um, so I think that's another big difference as well. Yeah, no, great answer. And, and having, you know, I didn't realize I was a customer facing person, like when I started at TechSmith a long time ago. And it's been, it's been really fun to see other people come into this space and realize like, oh, this is what it is. Cause it is different, right? Marketing does care that you use the right colors and the right logo and the right font. I care, and- I care too. I am, I'm definitely, and I, I feel like there's like this assumption also that people internally, like maybe they're, they don't like an internal training, like they're not working super fast necessarily to tight deadlines and they're not, their quality is low and all these things. And I think the biggest thing that like that I've noticed about that is that it's not if you're internal or external and it's not, it's not even necessarily the company that you're working for, but it's your leadership. It's like, what are, what have we agreed to as a team? What are our quality standards? Like mm-hmm. what are our SLAs for things? Like we're going to get a course out in how much time, like depending on these different things, like are, are we holding accountable or are we letting ourselves like push it out weeks? Um, so I definitely don't think when it comes to that, there's like this internal versus external or like company versus company um, sort of like ex- accepted like standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely think it's based more so on like your team and your leadership. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, and I think you have either way you have the dials to turn, right? We're going to crank up quality. We're going to crank up, crank up on how much analysis we do, or we're going to, you know, play with all those things so we can, we can accordion or, each, you know, expand or shrink the, the amount of time we're spending kind of the value. We do that a lot with some of our internal stuff. It's like, it just needs to be done. Like, let's just get it quick and easy. And even some external stuff, we're like, this. wow, this really needs, millions of people are going to see this. Let's make this really good. You know what? This one, we just know they need an answer. Like, but they don't, yeah. they're not, they don't care if it's the, the high polish. So let's just get it out there. So yeah. I, think that's, I think that's a great point that, you know, it's really what commitments are you making as a team? There's another yeah. question here. Michelle is asking, is there science behind the value of using talking head video in a learning experience? This is a great place to kick off some of our, our video questions. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you know the science. I don't know if I have data for this one, but I'm curious about your opinion about when you're making videos. I know you, you mentioned you use Camtasia, you, you know, yeah. talking heads. Yes. No. We, we have a lot of talking head in our video and it's something that I previously really didn't do a lot of. Um, we, we did a lot of that kind of stuff more in like pharma or like sales training type mm-hmm. of, um, places. And I, I can't speak to the science behind any of that. Um, it's not something like I've been researching and definitely is something I should be doing more due diligence on. But, um, for me, when it comes to, when it comes to experiences, like I want to, I want to understand like, what is the benefit? So if someone's like frustrated and they're just trying to find an answer to something quickly, like is talking head necessary? Or if we have a longer course and we're trying to have someone tell a story and make that story sticky. Like, I feel like this is just my feeling. This, there's no science behind this. I feel like talking head could be really super useful because it's like a person telling a story and you're connecting to it and hopefully it's sticky and you're remembering it. I think it just really depends on that experience and need for that person. And like, what, what's that person looking for? Are they looking for a quick answer? Are they looking to really understand a concept? Um, like, what is it? Yeah. And I know there's research out there and I just don't remember it. I think Ruth Clark might have in one of her books talks about this. And I, so I think it's all about the the design of your video, but I like what you said about story, right? Because there's something very human 
about being able to see a face, see the eyes, hear the voice. You know, you, you, like you can tell I'm smiling, excited, or I'm, or, you know, unhappy to I be mean, here. Humor, humor. I mean, you can get humor across without a person, but I feel like it, there is some probably some added value there too. Yeah, when it that, comes to humor. It gets context, right? Like, oh, they're laughing. You know, okay, I can see that. It's you know, you get all these cues, and I think so. What I would say to Michelle, though, just real quick, is that like use it judiciously use it like you don't it's not all everything shouldn't be talking head um you know you might bring in b-roll or you might bring in screen video or whatever it is to, to supplement but like also matters a lot on the topic if you're showing a how-to and you're someone's telling you the steps that's kind of kind of boring however an interview show is appropriate for having talking head video i would hope yeah. that's, what, that's what we're doing um, so, so let's, ask, I want to ask a couple questions about video and, and, and again, most, look, if you don't know, just opinions are great. Uh, what role should video be playing in kind of the learner experience design that you're doing? You know, we see a lot of trends that, you know, I think from about 2015, everyone said it's a year of the video. It's a year. like, I, I don't know what they declared 2021 if it, it was the year of the video again, but it's obviously grown in popularity. The ability to access video, the ability to create video is all expanded exponentially, especially now we see like, you know, everything, every meeting I'm in is lit technically a video. Um, <laughs> true. So I guess, true. I guess overall, what's your, what's your thoughts on kind of the role that video should play in learning? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm going to keep going back to like, we, we definitely have to be able to describe like, the why we're using anything regardless of like the medium, but for, for video, um, I, I have a example that is maybe okay. Um, so well, like years ago, a few years ago, like when I first started Amazon, I was creating training for engineers and it was basically like how to use AWS internally, how to deploy code, um, in a secure way that like we would do it. And they had so much documentation, amazing documentation on like how to do it, but it didn't describe the why. And where I feel like one place that video really helps is like as someone's like, like showing you how to do something and they're describing the why, you can connect those two things together. When you're reading a document on step by step and going step by step through something, you're just typically trying to like troubleshoot something or get something done to add all of that extra stuff in in a document is mm -hmm. you would be reading forever. So like, as you're doing something, you're, you're doing it, but you're also hearing and getting the connection on the why. So I think there's like a really, like, it's a really great place to say, like, to say those things like, okay, we are going to click on this button and do this, this way versus this way, because it's going to save X amount of time um, or do X, Y, Z, um, so I think it really gives that extra context that you don't have in other mediums necessarily without wasting, I don't want to say wasting time, but like without adding a lot of more time or a lot yeah. more like, like clutter. I think maybe I don't also know the science behind this, but I feel like it could lessen that like cognitive load. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? That obviously people can read, they can skim, but there's a lot of value in being able to get both of those things kind of married together. Like we're doing this and here's, here's the reasoning. You know, you can put that in a document, but sometimes it's just, yeah. I think there's added other things too, right? Like you're showing an action, it's a motion. And like, if you're like telling somebody to click and drag something, you know, like click and drag your sticky note thing over to this side, right? Like 
it's hard. You can say that, but if you if you are a new talking to a new user, they've never experienced click and drag a sticky note. What does that mean? Am I? Yeah. I, I got to find and my sticky you, notes. You know. And you kind of illustrate it too, right? So we were doing a video on um, I think it was something around like best practices when you know working with someone who is deaf and um, like someone who would be their like interpreter. Mm-hmm. And I apologize if I totally use the wrong terminology. Um, so like one of the things we were doing in the video is showing that like showing someone might be lip reading and we wanted to illustrate, like, if you are in a dark spot where someone can't see your lips, it's going to be hard for them to read your lips and doing, showing that in a visual or even better, like an animation is going to paint that picture a lot better than me just saying like, don't be in a dark spot. Like video also adds that emotion. It adds that depth, that realness where in some places I feel like is more warranted to have like maybe on a topic like that than something where it's not as like critical. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to, we're going to, we're going to have some fun. We're going to look at something brand new, Mel. We've got new research and I just want to ask you a few questions, but just your opinions about this research that you've never seen. Uh, this is TechSmith, oh, Ryan. No. So let, um, it's it's fine. It's it's about video stuff. It's no more difficult than what we've talked about. So let me just bring this up here. Uh, I think this is this going to be the right one. Yeah, there we go. So this is brand new, everybody. We're going to get a link so everyone can download this free today. No barriers, no emails, anything like that. Video viewer study. So Mel, we were looking at video viewer preferences. So when people look at video, you know, what are some of their preferences around video? And uh, this is actually, I think, our fourth time we've, we've run this study, 2013, 2016, 18, and now again in 2021. Uh, just for the clear of the record, we had an independent research firm, Qualtrics. They actually ran all the questioning. And Dr. Jane Bozarth, she is the one that compiled the report. So this is not just like, obviously, we had some input here, but it... From a validity standpoint, it's just not, these are not just Matt's opinions, okay? So let me just go down to the one of the stats. I'm going to scroll because I'm really inefficient here at doing multiple things. Uh, lots of cool things you can see in here. We'll skip past the methodology. This one's really interesting. I want to put a caveat on this. We asked the question about how people prefer to consume information. And I want to be very clear. This is not learning styles. We're not asking what your learning style was or anything. This is just how people like, what's your preference? And they could choose any of the three. So they could choose like, I like all of them if they wanted, because we know people can learn from all, all different styles. But I found this really interesting that 80, what is it, 83% said they prefer video. Now, obviously, because there's more than 100% there, some people said they also like reading text and they like listening to audio. Sorry, podcast lovers, you 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 scored low on this. Any thoughts That's about... Sh- that's Why shocking to me. Okay. <laughs> the, the, Why? The audio. So the audio piece is shocking to me because, um, because like what, like what we would so like often hear from like our survey feedback on all of our learning was like, I don't want to read. Right. <laughs> and then be like, but I would listen. Can, can you add voiceover? Um, so I was like, I find that really interesting that people like, because People would always be requesting voiceover for things. So um, that's, I think, like, the video piece makes sense. Like, I also, I guess it depends on the topic, right? But, like, mm-hmm. I I would agree. Like, I would prefer to be able to watch something in a lot of cases versus, versus read. Um, because if I'm reading, I have to, like, I can't be interrupted 
as much as like if I'm watching a video, I feel like I can pause a video. If I'm reading, I'm like, where did I even leave off? I have no idea. Um, so while some of it is shocking, some a lot of it is not shocking. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this is preference, right? People and people, what people do versus what they report can always be different. But I, I thought it was really an interesting thing that, that so many people were saying that. But I... I you know, I hear what you're saying about the audio, right? Like, I think that seems like, oh gosh, I was kind of surprised that not more people selected audio, but, um, but I was actually also surprised not more people chose text because the thing I like about text, and I'm a video person, so this is, you know, this is my career is video, but I love skimming. Like, I love kind of being able just to move ahead really quickly and you can do a little bit of, it's hard to do it in video but you can play yeah. it two times speed or whatever but so i just found that interesting um this, i want to go to oh go ahead this this could be i mean this is subjective though because like what are people thinking like are they like just trying to go to a user guide and like find something like what like instructional and informational contact content like what is that like what are people picturing when they picture that i guess is also the question yeah in the methodology we define what that is for them and they're supposed to be okay. thinking about one of these videos you know think like instructional is more step by step how to uh i think you had a button tutorial button tutorial is that what you called it um, oh like buttonology yeah buttonology <laughs> yeah and then the uh the informational i, I like to think of it as more like, like like it's like a ted talk it's like this program it's informational it's not it's not meant for entertainment um so that's one thing i want to go to another one here um, and this is going to be about, uh, what is it? Just why, why people stop watching videos. So we know that like, obviously people's attend, you know, people got a lot of things going on in their lives, right? They're busy. It's hard to, uh, you guys get all, oh, look at all the sneak preview. Wow. Look how much good stuff there is here. Um, that is a lot. I'm going to have we, to look at this later. We talk about like why people st keep watching and I'm going to get here, uh, here we want to, I'm going to look at why people stop watching videos. So this is the question was think the most recent time you stopped watching an again, instructional or informational video before it was over. Why did you stop watching? And this one's really interesting. 24% of the people said they received the information I needed, which is great. Like that's a great of all the reasons to stop watching a, a, one of our videos, right? That's a great reason. But how do you, as, as you're thinking about your learning design, and, you know, it's hard to know that, like why people, like, you don't know why they stopped. You just can see the metric they stopped watching at two minutes or three minutes or whatever. Yeah. So for, for you, um, as we look through these, so we got that one, we've got the next one is not getting the information, kind of flip side, right? I'm not getting the information yeah. I was expected. Uh, I was bored. Oops. Oops. I got distracted by other work tasks. I, I feel yeah. like that's really hard. Uh, I didn't, didn't cover the right topic, which is kind of like, the I wasn't getting what was expected. The quality was poor. Um, not working in an office and getting distracted by at-home influences. So, I guess as you as you kind of start to take this in, knowing that you're gonna your video, all of our videos are gonna come across one or more of these instances. Um, what advice would you give as you think about the designs that you're making for? And we could talk. We could. Let's talk. Start with video. I think we can kind of broaden yeah. it out. But how do you design so that you can maybe mitigate some of these challenges? Yeah. So I do think like you can infer things, but um, like one of the most important things like I found is like 
make sure you have data on this type of stuff, whether it's video or anything else, like how people are using things, like the experience that they're having. So at one point we were creating all of these PDFs and we couldn't like, and it was taking up so much time. And I was telling people about this today, actually. And I was like, we had no idea how many people were using these PDFs like at all or coming back to them or anything like that. And I mean, obviously they could download them and just reopen them. We wouldn't know, but um, we didn't know how many people were downloading them to begin with. So like we started using XAPI and tracking that. We found that like no one, no one was downloading them and it allowed us to ask the question to people like, why? Like, was like, can we find out, was it not helpful? Like, was it hard to get to? Like, why, what's, what was causing that? Um, and I think it's this, like, it's so important with video also to be able to say like, like, okay, people are dropping off at that, this point. Doesn't mean they weren't interested. Doesn't mean they got what they needed. If they got what they needed, that's amazing. Maybe we need to have that piece of information just outside of the video somewhere because it's super important. Um, so when it comes down to it, I just think having the data to begin with is very important to be able to like know where you're investing that time. And once you have that information, you can go back and say, historically, like we know this kind of information shouldn't be in a video. It should be outside of the video. But I think you have to have that data to be able to ask those questions or yeah, to be able to ask those questions and then come up with those things that you're saying, like we should keep this in a video or do a shorter video or do whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I know that data for some people is hard to get. It's, it's, this is not an easy problem, but I, I, I think that's a great answer because um, we don't, if we don't know the reasons why they're stopping, we don't, we're not asking that question specifically. We're not maybe even talking to our users like you started off at the kind of beginning about talk to our the users, ask them questions about what they, their actual behavior is versus you know, what they're indicating yeah. in surveys. Yeah, because like we can, we can make assumptions all day like, someone's not watching a video doesn't mean the video is not beneficial. Like maybe they don't know about it. Maybe it's broken. Like we have to kind of know that someone's doing or not doing something in order to investigate it deeper for the most part, I feel. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you if people are, we're going to have a speed round yet. And I know there's at least one more question that's coming in from the audience, but like if people want to follow you, find you, connect with you, where's the best places to do that, Mel? Yeah, I feel like um, LinkedIn's a really great place and I love connecting with everyone. So feel free, like shoot me a connection, just Melissa Milloway on LinkedIn. Just you can look me up. And then um, I have melslearninglab.com, which is my website. It's a little bit stale right now. Um, I'm mainly on LinkedIn and Twitter and Twitter it's Mel Milloway. Um, so Twitter's more of like my personal professional account and then LinkedIn's my like professional professional account. So on on Twitter, you'll see a lot more of my dog. Oh, per- so per- perfect. If, <laughs> a, mi- a mix of dog and, and articles. <laughs> awesome. And uh, so, yeah, we'll drop, the, we actually have those links. We'll drop those into the chat for anyone that's listening. We'll put them in the show notes for uh, people listening after the fact. So let's go to our, this this last question. Then we're going to our speed round here. So we're, we're getting we're getting close on time. So Daniel Foster, Texas Zone, Daniel Foster, he, he's a good good person that I work with. He's, he's asking, he says, hi, Mel. Thanks for sharing your experience with creating content. Do you work on the first run onboarding for Miro? He said, he said, I signed up today, was invited to a board by a coworker and experienced the onboarding. Two sequences of coach marks, a hotkey overlay, and a two minute video. It made me super curious about how, off, 
how Miro decides what onboarding items to include and how you measure the impact of each item. Any thoughts you can share on that? Oh gosh, I do not know about, like this isn't my area of the team, so I wish I could answer that. Um, no worries. <laughs> Daniel, but I, I don't know. So I, I strictly work on the academy side of things. So anything that's like on academy.miro.com. So I couldn't really answer that one for you. We'll, we'll figure it out. I'm, I'm sure Daniel's, <laughs> Daniel's a smart guy. He, he knows how to get answers to those things. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting Good though. Question. There's all sorts, there's all sorts of processes that we have to be designing for. It's that first touch experience. It's the, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, the idea of customer uh, education is retaining people, right? That's a different kind of a different experience than bringing people on board. It's different than even earlier in the funnel of like, we have a problem for, you know, for, for TechSmith. It's like, I do, I need to communicate something like, and that could be super early or I need to, I need to make a video. How am I going to do that? So yeah, it's, it's super interesting. So, well, in, in the sake of time, let's, let's jump into our speed round. And so here we go. Ooh. All right. First question. I promised some dog questions. So uh, I, I, I think I saw on through all your stuff. How, how is Zidi? He's, Zidi, he's right here. Should I get him? He's yeah. Right here. Here. Zidi, We've never had a dog on the show. So this is oh, He was amazing. sleeping. So he's like, Aww. he's probably going to be really tired. Hi, he's just napping. He's doing well. <laughs> he's, he's thriving here. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. And I have to ask, what are dog crocs? So um, if you go and Google wag wellies, they have these like little shoes that dogs can wear. Um, the summer ones look like Crocs. They have little tiny holes in them. So they're like uh, little booties that have holes and they're to keep their feet um, safe from the hot pavement. So he has a pair of green ones and I also have green Crocs and we wear them together. <laughs> I'm like showing my ultra like dog mom nerd side right now. That's, no, that's awesome. So, okay, moving away from, from we'll keep Zidi on because Zidi will get way more attention than either you or I. Uh, curious, what advice would you give someone who, and again, speed round, short, quick, fast answer. Uh, what advice would you give someone who's interested in in learning more about learning experience design and the UXF, where, where would you point them? What would you tell them? I would say definitely start following people on LinkedIn. I always point people to, um, like there's a few people like Kath Ellis and some of some of the other folks who are always like live on LinkedIn or like posting stuff they've been working on. So um, definitely just like go down a rabbit hole on LinkedIn and find one learning experience designer and then see who they're interacting with and just keep like finding gems of people who are posting things. And you'll that's how that's how I really, really got into the, the field more deeply is finding new people and just connecting. Yeah. And then if, if you, I think the algorithm works, if you like those people or try to follow people, it'll start curating that content and you have to work less hard at it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Next question, Mel, is uh, kind of generally in your work, you're doing a lot of design work, which uh, can be intense and kind of um, creatively heavy, even though it's you know not necessarily meant to be creative work. So where do you turn for inspiration? I, so I have this app, a Google Chrome extension called Panda. It's the Panda extension. And on that extension, you can curate like different news resources. So I have this one called Sidebar. It's a lot of like really good UX articles. I also have Email Love, which shows me like really cool like 
email um, campaigns that people have done before. So that's, it pops up every morning for me. So I get my news like just curated for me. So I would say that's a really good one for design. Awesome. Awesome. So the last question is one that it's consistent across every guest that we've done speed round with. And it's always, it's deemed the hardest question. So the question is, what's a question you'd like to ask me? Ooh, I, yeah. So I would like to know, because I just recently got into customer education, like what brought you to the customer education side of things? You know, sheer luck. And I had no idea that customer education was a thing. I, I, I started customer ed and technically now that we have a name for it, I started doing customer education 15 years ago at TechSmith. I, I was looking for an instructional design job. And there was this one at the software company called TechSmith that made a product that I knew called Snagit. And I'm like, that sounds great. I want to do instructional design at a software company that, and I had no idea. Uh, and in fact, we actually had a whole department. It was our tech, our, our training team, so instructional designers, our technical writers who did you know all the help content, and our technical support team actually fell under it. We used to call it customer engagement. Uh, and I was the manager of the customer engagement team, uh, not knowing that customer education was a <laughs> way better name, um, or that it would become this big thing that it's, it seems to be coming right now. So yeah, I just, I got really lucky and fell into it knowing that I wanted to do instructional design and I, I just keep being able to do that. And I've, I, you know, it's, it's, I think one thing that's really helped me though, is I moved to marketing for a little bit. And as much as like different worlds, uh, having that perspective has been really good from a customer education standpoint. Cause I get to see more like, Oh, yeah, this is why we're doing all this customer education, not just to help be helpful. That's good. Yeah. But we also have these goals of the things that we want to do. We, 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 we like our customers and we want them to be successful. But that also means we need to make sure TechSmith is being successful as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think so many people watching this like may want to make a segue into customer education. So I feel like hearing your story is just much more helpful even. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing segment. I just, it's interesting to watch it grow. Like it's growing before my eyes. Like, you know, two years ago it was pretty small. Uh, there's a, there's a great customer education community out there on Slack and, uh, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and jobs almost every day. So lots of opportunity. So, For sure. Question, Now's Mel. the time. <laughs> All right. Thank well, you. If you'll hang on just a second, Mel, I'm going to wrap up the show and we'll, we'll say our formal goodbyes. But thank you so much for, for everything today. It's been fantastic talking with you. And for everybody, listen, thank you so much for tuning in to the Visual Lounge. We hope that you like it. And if you learned something today, something stood out to you, you're inspired, tag TechSmith. Use hashtag Visual Lounge or just, I don't care, just use hashtag Visual Lounge or just at TechSmith. Let us know that you found something to be useful and valuable. You can tag me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter or wherever. And we're happy to respond and comment because we love hearing that stuff. It helps us know that we're making good shows. You can also like, subscribe, share on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or video platforms. So with that said, we hope every day you're just taking a little bit of time, whether it's for yourself and making images, video, whatever it might be, and you're leveling up. And we'll see you guys next week. We've got just a hint here. We've got a Grammy Award winner, actually two, coming on the show. You're not going to want to miss it. See you next week. Mm -hmm.